Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, we are joined by the co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Open Notebook, Dr. Siri Carpenter. The Open Notebook is a science journalism nonprofit organization that provides tools and resources to help science, environmental, and health journalists at all experience levels sharpen their skills. Siri co-founded this group with science journalist Jeannie Erdman. She finished a stint as president of the National Association of Science Writers in 2020. She has been an editor at Discover Magazine and Science News for Students and has written for Science and Scientific American, among many other places. She joins us from Madison, Wisconsin. Thank you for talking to us today. Can you take us through your path as a science journalist dating all the way back to when you discovered that you had a passion for science and how that's kind of played through in your career? Hi, sure. Thanks, Mark. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. Um, I would be happy to do that. My career path as a science journalist, I guess, dates back to when I was an undergraduate at the University of Wisconsin. I was a psychology major back in the early 90s, and I had this realization that I thought that I would like to be a writer and that I'd like to write about science. And I didn't really have a, a better formed idea than that. And I asked around a bit of professors in the psychology department, and I went over to the English department and asked sort of, I'd like to write about science. Is that a thing? And, and pretty much people said, no, I don't think so. And I, for some reason, it never occurred to me that what I was picturing was, in fact, journalism. So unfortunately, I never went to the journalism school and asked these questions. If I would have, I would have found out that there is a field of science journalism. But I didn't. And I, I did feel passionate about the, the research that I was doing in psychology and social psychology, studying um, prejudice and stereotyping. And so I went to grad school for psychology at Yale University. And then I was a couple of years into my program there when um, I had this realization that science writing was in fact a thing. I think that that happened because I was, I had gotten into the habit of reading the New York Times science section on Tuesdays. Uh, my department subscribed to the New York Times and it would be sitting around in the faculty and grad student lounge. And so I was in the habit of reading it. And one day I just kind of had this brainwave that these people who were writing these articles about science on Tuesdays, that this was their job. And if that was a job, then that could be my job. And gosh, I really wanted that job. And that's really all that I knew. And this was before Google was a thing. And so I went home and I entered science writing into uh, a search engine called AltaVista, which I don't know if it even exists anymore. And when I did, I found out that science writing was a thing, that there's a National Association of Science Writers. And so that told me, yes, these people exist. This is a career and it could be my career. And um, the way that I really got started was thanks to that website, because um, I didn't know anyone who was a science writer or who knew science writers and um, who knew how to get started in that career. But the National Association of Science Writers website had a page if you can believe it, called Science Writers with Email. 
And um, so I emailed all those people. And I think it was like 20 people or so who were listed as science writers who have email. This was about 1997 or so. And um, one of those people wrote me back. Um, His name is Charles Seif. And Charles is now a professor of journalism at New York University. But back then, he was a young science journalist. And he was very kind to answer my questions and to begin to educate me about what science writing is and how you could get started as a science writer. And he told me about the um, American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, Mass Media Fellowship Program, which is an internship program for science graduate students and postdocs who are interested in science writing to intern at a media outlet for the summer. And I was lucky enough to get one of those internships and spent a summer working at the Richmond Times-Dispatch in Richmond, Virginia, and had the time of my life, and I was really hooked. So that's how I got started. And what led you to start The Open Notebook? Well, uh, that was a lot later. Um, That was back in 2010, so we just celebrated our 10th anniversary. In 2010, I was, you know, a number of years into a career as a freelance science journalist, and I had become friends with Jeannie Erdman, who um, is a science journalist who's based outside of St. Louis. And Jeannie and I would have periodic conversations, uh, kind of accountability conversations, the way that writers sometimes do to talk about what we're working on and help motivate each other and read each other's pitch letters and and you know mull over story ideas and so on and oftentimes we would find ourselves talking about a specific story that we had read and that we liked and um and just talking about you know wondering how that writer did such and such thing how did they find that idea or how did they get access to a certain source or how did they figure out how to structure that story or how to start it or how to end it or whatever and we along the way had the idea that it would be great to just interview a few people about these stories that we admired and to get the story behind the story. And our idea was that in doing that, we would learn about um, the working processes of the writers who we admired and um, how they executed such great stories. And therefore, we would get better at it ourselves. And then pretty quickly, we thought, well, hey, if this would be valuable for us, maybe other people might like to read those interviews. And so maybe we should make a website. And so it started off as very much a labor of love and and really kind of a self-interested one. We wanted to get better at our craft. And we thought that just diving into the story behind certain stories would help us get better. And, um, And then pretty quickly, we realized that this was, in fact, a really compelling process for us and that people who were reading those interviews were also finding them to be useful and compelling, and we're also hungering for um, greater understanding of how other science journalists and the best science journalists did their work. I would describe the open notebook as useful and compelling uh, overall. Let's look at it at a practical level, though. Let's say that I'm writing a story about a astronomical discovery or a new cancer drug or a technological advancement or something in the social sciences like psychology of decision-making. I come to the open notebook, what happens? (laughs) 
Well, it would depend a lot on what your questions are. We at The Open Notebook, we have published around 450 articles on the craft of science writing, and they cover a wide gamut of subjects from how to find and shape story ideas, how to pitch story ideas to editors, how to work with editors, how to handle rejections from editors. There's a lot about dealing with editors, Um, how to read a scientific paper, um, how to make sense of the statistics in a scientific paper, how to interview experts, how to interview people who have who are who are not scientific experts but whose lived experience is relative to is relevant to your story, how to cover stories that haven't been peer reviewed, um, preprints, it's a big topic during the pandemic especially, um, how to find diverse sources and, and make your reporting and writing inclusive how to do data reporting, just on and on. So if you were to come to the Open Notebook, you might have specific questions that you would put into the search bar. You know, I need to write a lead. How, do, how can I figure out how to write a better lead? Or I am worried that this, this paper that I'm reading um, has some kind of fishy-seeming statistics. How can I understand whether that's the case? Um, I am going to be interviewing a source who has experienced trauma and I don't want to mess that up. So you could, you know, you could do searches for those kinds of topics. You could browse through different collections that we have. Um, Like we have a a collection, for example, of stories really aimed at people who are getting started in science journalism. We have a collection of stories about narrative storytelling practices in science journalism. We have a collection on environmental journalism um, we have a, a set of resources for diversity, equity, and inclusion in science writing. And then we have, I think by now, a couple hundred interviews with writers that are these these deep dive story behind the story interviews about how people have executed other stories. So those can serve as inspiration. And, and we try to make sure that every story that we do is really just chock full of practical tips and and try to aim our stories at multiple levels of experience. So we have a lot for beginners, but we also have a lot for people who are tackling various difficult aspects of science writing that um, that can be a challenge for people at any level of experience. Um, one of the things I might mention that we also have is we um, last year we began to translate some of our stories into Spanish. And so we have a growing collection of Spanish translations of some of our stories. And so if you are um, a science writer in um, whose first language is Spanish, then um, we hope to be building this, this collection of resources in Spanish. All this time that you've spent studying science journalism, uh, I think this, this qualifies you to answer some questions about science journalists and what traits do they need the most uh, in order to be good science journalists? That's a great question. And I, you know, I really like the way that you focused it on traits, um, which is a bit different than skills. You know, there are, there are any number of skills that you need as a science journalist that are all learnable. And, um, you know, those skills involve under, some understanding of statistics or how to, how to get answers about statistics, some understanding of the scientific method, um, et cetera of course, various writing skills and and reporting skills. But the traits that a science journalist most needs, I think, are uh, really interesting to talk about 
I'd say number one, curiosity. If you are if you are not curious about the world and about the role that science plays in the world, then you know you're probably not well suited to to being a science writer. Um, and then, of course, in addition, an interest in in telling stories about science, um, because there are plenty of people who um, may have plenty of curiosity about science, but just don't fancy themselves storytellers. To be a journalist of any kind, of course, you need to have a, a commitment to facts and to the idea that there is such a thing as a fact and that there's a, that there's a reality to be reported. And then I think that there's there's a sort of emotional trait that you have to have as a as a science journalist, and that is a, a tolerance for for feeling ignorant sometimes uh, because you're you're always coming to new topics that you know not much about and that you know less about than the people you're interviewing that's why you're interviewing them and so being able to to tolerate that that feeling of ignorance and being willing to ask you know quote dumb questions i think is really important and and especially for people who come into science writing from science people who've gotten a phd in science that that feeling dumb is is uncomfortable and there's a real temptation to to not want to show that you that you feel kind of dumb about some aspect of of what they're studying you don't have the expertise that they have and that can be a problem when you're reporting because not wanting to ask the basic questions um, leads to not getting the answers to those questions so that you can share them with your audience. And so that's why I say that it's it's so important to be willing to ask the really basic stuff, even if it makes you feel dumb. Where else do you find that uh, writers need coaching when it comes to science writing? I think uh, one of the really frequent common challenges that I see people having over and over again is is just the challenge of of shaping ideas, especially for feature stories, and and moving from a topic to a story. And um, as an editor at various publications, I very often have seen people pitching topics instead of stories. And what I mean by that is, you know, a, a topic, I, I like to use the analogy that a, a topic is a noun and a story is a verb. And editors are constantly asking freelancers, pitch me stories, not topics. Ironically, editors are very often assigning topics to freelancers and asking them to find the story. But that, that whole process of finding the right angle to tell a story and shaping an idea into a story is a, is a persistent challenge for, I think, for many science writers. Pitching stories to editors effectively is a big challenge. Um, you know, what I always say is that if you aren't able to sell a story to an editor, then you aren't going to be able to tell it to an audience. And um, one of the reasons that The Open Notebook publishes this pitch database that we do, which is a collection of, right now it's around 215 successful pitch letters, like magazine and, and newspaper and online pitch letters to editors, is um, because we realized years ago that there, we weren't seeing a lot of examples of other people's pitches. And so freelancers are very often operating in the dark, trying to figure out what an editor needs to hear from them in order to assign them a story. And so we thought a collection of examples of successful pitch letters 
would be valuable and it's it's proved to be super super popular in terms of writing of the writing itself um on the podcast i regularly invoke stories about my mentor dr robert cole can you explain the importance of the advice that you got from your mentor which was write for dr fauci's aunt the story that you're referring to is is a piece of advice that i got from my first mentor in science writing aj hostetler who was the science reporter at the richmond times dispatch when i interned there back in the late 90s and aj used to advise me and i think she advised generations of interns after me to t- to write stories like you're writing for tony fauci's aunt and um, that advice basically am- amounts to telling stories in a way that is simple and that your audience is going to be able to understand. And she got this advice or, or, or came to this idea after hearing um, Dr. Fauci give a talk in the, I think in the late eighties during that, during the AIDS crisis. And he talked with, he was talking with a group of science writers in Washington, DC. And he talked about how he had been very proud of himself and the way that he was communicating about AIDS when he was giving public speeches and so on. But then he was visiting with his aunt and his aunt told him, you know, Tony, it's really wonderful to see you on the news. We're so proud of you, but I really can't understand anything that you're talking about. And his realization was that he was, um, he felt that he was not doing a good enough job in communicating about science in a way that lay people could understand. And so he tries to remember to communicate about science as though he's talking to his aunt. And so AJ took the advice away that she also would try to communicate as though she were writing for Tony Fauci's aunt, which I think is a, is a great story and very cute and and timely now. Um, I also do want to add, though, that, you know, very often when science writers talk about um, trying to communicate clearly, they invoke the idea of of this um, hypothetical audience. And, you know, we'll say, talk about it like you're telling it to Tony Fauci's aunt, or like you're telling it to your mother or your grandmother, or some other individual. And very often the person who is invoked in that hypothetical is a woman. And I do think that that is something to be careful of because it can propagate this idea that it's women who are ignorant about science or women who are unable to understand complicated ideas. And of course, that's not the intention. In the case of the Tony Fauci story, it was literally his aunt. Um, but I do think it's it's um, something to be wary of in thinking about how we talk about how we communicate because it's very easy to continue to perpetuate stereotypes that are damaging in doing that. In this, in the site's mission statement, this kind of segues into, into this topic. uh, It says at no other time in human history has the meaning of what constitutes a fact, a valid piece of knowledge been more at risk than it is today. Journalists' ability to communicate facts about science clearly, accurately, and engagingly has never been more critical for public understanding of science and for a well-functioning democracy. So with that, what has it been like to uh, promote science writing in the age of Trump compared to what it was like to promote it in the age of Clinton, Bush, or Obama? Right. Yeah, I mean, this has been an extremely challenging time for science and for journalism. There's a 
there's a blurb on the front of the book that we published this year, The Craft of Science Writing, um, by the, the great journalist Jackie Bonashinsky, who says, in an era when facts are under assault, this book is especially welcome. And I really think that this idea that facts have been under assault is so... I mean, it's just so obviously clear now that the last four years have been, um, I don't think that assault is is hyperbole, to use that term. Um, and of course, we're seeing that um, just in the last, you know, couple of weeks surrounding the election, that the the proliferation of misinformation and disinformation and conspiracy thinking and the labeling of facts as fake news over the over the last few years has has had a really damaging effect on our society and is uh, is a real um challenge for journalists um it means that journalists science journalists are are always fighting a rearguard battle about what we might think would be unassailable facts um, and that that makes it difficult to um, to communicate ideas when when you're fighting just to establish the very viability of the concept of a fact. How is it different in in the Trump years than it has been in previous years? You know, Trump did not invent misinformation, and um, the idea of distrust in journalism did not begin with Trump. Um, he has worsened it and, and his, his surrogates and allies have worsened it. And, um, you know, I do think that it's, it's come to a, a crisis level and it's, but it's not, it's not something that is brand new as a challenge for journalism. It's also, I think it really just highlights the critical importance of journalism in this time. Um, During the course of the pandemic, personally, I have relied so heavily on the information and insight that journalists have brought that have guided, you know, just my own personal decision making uh, during the pandemic, um, as recently as as this week, um, in thinking about Thanksgiving and how to handle um, the possibility of my daughter coming home from college at Thanksgiving and, and what is an appropriate quarantine and can we hug her? And, um, you know, just really basic questions like that where we, we are utterly lacking in in reliable, trustworthy, clear guidance from our elected officials and where we are getting it is from journalists. We'll be back with more with Siri Carpenter in just a moment. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I saw this on the site as well, and it kind of uh, goes along with what you uh, just said. And the skills that science journalists need are endangered. Only a fraction of working science journalists are trained in formal journalism programs. And with the shrinking number of traditional staff jobs available, science journalism is fast moving toward a gig economy that relies on freelancers. How do we fix each of these issues here? 
Yeah, those are, I mean, those are big challenges. And they have been challenges that have been facing um, our field for a long time. I mean, I think that those words were on our website a decade ago when we started it. Um, it, it is the case that um, science journalism is not a well-paying field, for one thing, you know, nor is most of journalism. Um, and a lot of science journalists come into the field without having had formal training like through journalism um, master's programs. And there is, there's a, a barrier to entry for aspi- aspiring science writers because of the financial struggles that the entire journalism industry is facing. And that barrier is especially problematic for aspiring journalists from historically marginalized communities. And so, so those are big challenges, I think, how do we fix that as a community? One thing that I think is is just really important and that is the kind of foundational idea behind the open notebook is um, mutual support for professional and skills development. And that's what we try to um, propagate and help sustain and support through the open notebook. And it, that is also a major goal of many other organizations, um, you know, journalism organizations, and, you know, for example, the National Association of Science Writers, which um, until just a few weeks ago, I was a board member of. Um, but, you know, this is a, a project of NASW and the Council for the Advancement of Science Writing and the Knight Science Journalism Program at MIT and many other organizations that are trying to to enable and support that kind of professional and skills development that is so essential to continuing to strengthen the field. I want to touch on one writing uh, topic just because of your expertise uh, as a writer and now as certainly in the last 10 years as a reader of science uh, content. I've noticed you, you mentioned before storytelling uh, in turn when it comes to scientific writing. I've noticed that you've done it a lot uh, in your writing, I noticed that you have a number of articles on your site uh, that are very extensive when it comes to that and that do it really well. Uh, can you cite a favorite article or two and the story or anecdote that went with it that tells an interesting scientific story? Sure. Uh, gosh, there are so many. I, I mean, the reason that we started the the site is because of our admiration for so many stories, of course. And there's a lot of emphasis on narrative storytelling at the Open Notebook. And and I think sometimes when people think about narrative, they think about these really big, sweeping, you know, four to six to 10,000 word pieces um, that are just chock full of narrative. Um, but I think it's really important to, to recognize that narrative can come in really small doses and that it's it's stories that um, are what change minds and that are what motivate action and it's not facts we have to get the facts right that's a, that's kind of a um, you know that's that's the first imperative of all journalism is to get the facts right but facts alone aren't enough to change minds and that is the job of stories. And so when we talk about storytelling, we're talking about connecting data to human beings, to people's lived experience, 
we're talking about identifying the emotions and motivations behind the science. Um, we're talking about action and scenes and um, telling details that humanize science and that place it appropriately in our minds as a human endeavor that is imperfect, but powerful. Um, one example that I often bring up when I just think about narrative storytelling that I like is a really delightful story. Um, and this is, this is quite a number of years old now, um, but it's a story that um, the writer Brian Vostog wrote for the Washington Post um, back in around 2011 or 2012. Um, Brian was a science reporter at the Post and um, he stumbled upon a news release about this amateur dinosaur footprint tracker who lived um, in Maryland outside of DC and um, who had found this um, baby dinosaur footprint, I think. And, and, um, and Brian saw a press release about that and thought, oh, that's cool. And maybe that would be like a daily story um, for the newspaper. But then as he dug into it more, he found out that this, this dinosaur tracker, Ray Stanford, was actually this kind of legendary amateur but extremely expert dinosaur footprint tracker. And he ended up writing a story about uh, a profile of Ray Stanford and um, I really just, the story was fascinating. I would encourage any of your listeners to, to go dig it up. The, the title of that story by, is, is uh, I think it's like the tireless tracker who rewrote the book on dinosaur footprints in Maryland or something like that. And it's by Brian Vostog. And we, and we have an interview with Brian about that story at the Open Notebook um, and about how he found it and how he pursued it. But it's just really wonderfully engaging from the very beginning. There's this opening scene in the story that um, he, Brian is out in the field with Ray Stanford and they're splashing around in a stream and he describes him as having the, the, the coiled energy of a stalking cat and he describes you know what he's wearing. He's wearing these knee-high boots and they're leaving these shallow heel prints that fill with water and, you know, just this kind of allusion to how the dinosaur footprints were formed in the first place. And he describes him as crouching and scanning and his, you know, his hair waving in the sun, sunshine. And it, it all sounds, as I'm describing it, it sounds kind of over the top. And I think it was sort of intentionally over the top on Brian's part, but it creates this fantastic scene. And you come away from this, these opening paragraphs of the story with this real tangible sense of this fellow as a person and um and you know what he's like in doing this work and then Brian goes on to tell this fascinating story that takes this really wild left turn toward the end and it's just such a great story I love it and I, I reference it really often I can um, I can uh, I can grasp it from from the way that you're that you're telling it what represents success for your organization Huh. Well, I, you know, our goal is, this might sound trite, but our, our goal is to be helpful, I guess. Our goal is to make a difference for science journalists around the world. And also for journalists who may not think of themselves as science journalists, but who are sometimes called upon to cover science. And um, that's really important because most people 
don't get their news from science journalists. Most Americans are tuning into um, their local TV stations or their local newspapers and, um, and are getting the news of the day that affects their lives from political reporters, from education reporters, from general assignment reporters, city hall reporters, etc., who are all incredibly skilled and who are dealing with stories who, um, that, are, um, that touch on science in some way and they have to make decisions about how to cover those stories. Um, and I hope that The Open Notebook can, can be valuable for them as well. I also, you know, I think if we can help to provide support and empowerment to science journalists around the world who um, may not have as much access to training in science journalism as, as um, is available in the U.S., then I think that will have been a success. Um, and... Yeah, I, I'm not sure that I have an end point in mind. I don't see ending anytime soon. Um, it's funny to think back on when we started, Jeannie and I thought that maybe we would do a couple dozen of these interviews and then be done. And I remember explicitly say, saying, you know, I think people might want to read a couple dozen of these. It's not like they're going to want to read 75 of them. And now that we've done, you know, I don't know, 150 interviews or something like that, <laughs> I guess I've um, proven myself wrong. One other thing, I, I typically, these interviews that I've done have typically been super serious, super focused, uh, very straight, very serious. But if you go to your website, there is something there that uh, I would say is, I wrote absurd as the word, but I'm not sure that that does it justice because it really is amazing in, its, uh, in the way that it is constructed. What in the world is the world's finest science-themed peeps diorama contest? I felt like I was watching uh, John Oliver as I was scrolling through some of those. <laughs> yes, I think absurd is a perfectly appropriate word. It is, what is the world's finest science-themed Peeps diorama contest? It is the funnest thing ever. The Peeps diorama contest is something that we've done for two years now, and we'll do it again. It's, it's been a blast. It is a partnership between The Open Notebook and three people who really, it was their brainchild, um, uh, Kate Ramsayer and Helen Fields and Joanna Church, who are, um, Kate and Helen are science writers, and the three of them had been, um, over the years, had been involved in constructing dioramas out of peeps, which, if you're not familiar, is a whole thing. Um, so, you know, dioramas like you used to make in grade school, like a three-dimensional thing in a shoebox or whatever, but making dioramas specifically out of peeps, the like the Easter candy treat, um, the marshmallow treat, um, is a, a um, I guess I would say it is a, a form of art. At least it's a form of crafting. And the Washington Post used to host a peeps diorama contest, and Kate and Helen and Joanna used to enter that, and they had some really great um, dioramas, um, like a Hamilton, the, the musical Hamilton, a Hamill Peeps diorama, and they had a, a Moby Peep diorama, and they had a number of others. 
And then one year, the Washington Post broke everyone's heart by stopping hosting the Peeps Diorama contest. Inexplicably. I don't know why they did that, because it was so beloved. But Helen and Joanna and Kate decided that what they should do is um, come up with a a science-themed Peeps Diorama contest. And they're friends of mine, and they approached me about that idea, and I, it took me about a millisecond to say, yes, the Open Notebook does want to host the science, a science-themed Peeps Diorama contest, and of course, it will be the world's finest science-themed Peeps Diorama contest. I think it's also the only one. And so we, two years ago, started that, and um, we got around 50 entries, and they are phenomenal. If you go to theopennotebook.com slash peeps, you can find they are works of art. And okay, yes, it is absurd to craft dioramas out of peeps. I will admit that, but it is also wonderful. And I will also say that I find them incredibly touching, actually. They're, some of them, the craftsmanship, first of all, on them is incredible. They're these tiny little things, and um, you can zoom in on the photos and see the little details, and they're just incredible. And um, they're done, some of them are by adults, some of them are by children, some are by families, some are by school classrooms. And they're, I just find them so inspiring, and they're just, they're a way for people to express their appreciation and curiosity about science in a different form and, um, you know, a particularly sticky form. And they are, the Peeps contest, um, I have to say, was this year's Peeps contest was a bit interrupted by the start of the the pandemic. We, the, the, the original deadline for the contest fell right around the time when everything was hitting the fan and um, in the spring, and we decided to push it back a little bit and, and give people more time, especially because kids were now going to be home from school and maybe needing things to do and so on. And um, when those entries started rolling in, they were just like a balm for the soul because they're so creative and clever and touching. And um, there's there's a family that has been winners of the contest for two years in a row now and um, the first year the family led by their 14 year old daughter created this um, hidden figures peeps diorama hidden peeps and and then that was that was our golden our golden peep award and then um, the next year um, they did chicks save the planet chicks like the little peeps you know and um, their daughter is now 15 years old and um, this is like um, a diorama that highlights this wave of youth activism around the world calling attention to climate change and it's just it's so great it's the best thing ever so I encourage all of your listeners to put their peeping hats on and be thinking about what they could do to create a science-themed Peeps Diorama contest for the hashtag Peep Your Science 2021 contest, because it's just around the corner. And as much as the passion that you showed in talking about it, it, it becomes 10 times higher. And I think you, you get kind of, it becomes contagious when you look at them and you're just yeah. uh, reveling in the, the magic uh, the magic and the artistry. All right, two, two last questions to wrap things up here. 
I feel like at asking you what advice you have for science journalists, which is the typical kind of question that I would ask at the end of the podcast, that we've essentially done that for almost 40 minutes now. So different question. Right. What advice would you have for someone who wants to create a journalism community? Hmm. My experience running the Open Notebook over the last decade has been really a moving experience for me because it has shown me that there is that there is such community out there and that there's such a generosity of spirit among science journalists and uh, you know I'm sure that this is true within any journalistic community that people want to help each other and like of course there are there is a sense in which science journalists are competitive with each other to you know to get the story first and and so on but what i've seen in our community that has been so profoundly um encouraging to me is that there's just this kind of endless well of generosity among science journalists to share from their experience to share their um, failures as well as their successes and their doubts and their imposter syndrome and their the blind alleys that they've gone down and the mistakes that they've made as well as the good ideas and the tricks and tips and tools and you know brilliant world changing great ideas and um, so I I think what running the open notebook has shown me is that you don't have to build a community that community is there and that within any within in any group of journalists that there's a fundamental goodness and generosity that all you need to do is to kind of create a a mechanism for it to express itself and and then we all reap the benefits so for someone who's trying to create a journalism community i think be emboldened to to feel that there's going to be a hunger for that community to exist. Regardless of uh, what kind of uh, community it is, certainly there, mm -hmm. you can, there are many different communities that uh, can be formed. So last question, uh, is there a journalism organization that you would like to salute? Oh, yes. Um, well, there are a lot of them, I suppose. Well, first of all, I would be remiss if I did not talk about the um, National Association of Science Writers. And I'll admit that I have a bias here. I, until recently, as I mentioned, I was on the board of NASW. But this organization has been my professional home for more than 20 years and does so much for science writers of all kinds in the U.S. and around the world. And just, you know, it's a, it's a volunteer driven organization. It's an organization that has one full-time employee and hundreds of volunteers that do an incredible amount to support the professional development and um, the needs of science writers and to to promote science writing as a as a craft and as um, an imperative in society. I also want to mention a, a new initiative that I think is really cool. Um, it's the SPJ, Society of Professional Journalists Race and Gender Hotline. Um, the Race and Gender Hotline is a collaboration, I understand, between SPJ and the, the new, uh, new association called the Trans Journalist Association. And it's what it is, is it's like a, a confidential hotline 
um, resource for reporters and editors and photographers, um, art directors to to um, provide guidance from Black and LGBTQ experts about um, whatever conundrums that journalists might encounter over the course of covering race and gender issues. They can just type their question into the website and then get connected up with an expert who's being paid by SPJ and, and the Trans Journalists Association to, um, to serve as a consultant on those questions. So I just think it's a really great and needed initiative and a really great idea. And then I also just recently learned about this really cool organization that I just thought I'd mention. It's called Resolve Philly. Um, and it's a nonprofit that has a mission, this is in, in Philadelphia, that has a mission to advance journalism that's built on equity and on elevating and empowering community voices and on shining a light on um, community efforts to, to create social change. And I learned about it through a couple of talks that I attended. And I just think Resolve Philly is um, a really awesome organization. It's a collaboration between a number of different newsrooms in that area, and it seems like a really great model for community-based collaborative solutions journalism. I think it started through the Solutions Journalism Network, which is another really great organization and, and has become its own independent thing. Siri, thank you for joining us. We wish you the best of success for the next 10, 20, 30 years and beyond with The Open Notebook. Thank you so much for having me. I like any organization where the definition of success is, we just want to be helpful. I was so impressed with the community that Siri Carpenter has put together. In fact, after I got done editing the podcast, I immediately wrote an email to a couple of writers in my field, baseball coverage, to see what they thought about certain aspects of the Open Notebook community. Other journalism communities could definitely take a lesson from the science writing world. And also, if you haven't already paused the podcast to look at the diorama contest, please do so. You won't regret it. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who taught journalism at my alma mater, Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. He inspired hundreds of future journalists. I know that some have nicknamed him Father Journalism, but I think you could also go with The Open Notebook because he was so helpful to anyone who came to him with questions. And I want to give a shout-out to another professor at the college, Kim Pearson, who similarly has inspired hundreds of students who went into public relations, journalism, and community work. Professor Pearson similarly always seems to have endless amounts of time to help with anything her students need. She just got a great shout-out in the school alumni magazine. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. If you're interested in following along with us, follow us on Twitter at Journalism Salute, S-A-L-U-T. There are more episodes to come. Thank you for tuning in.